Hello. Hi. Welcome to Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and cryptids. I am your host, Hattie James. I am your other host, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Hattie. So, should we explain to the listeners who might just be tuning in what this podcast is? Sure, let's do that. Okay. Am I saying who? <laughs> <laughs> let's do that. Silence. <laughs> okay, uh, this is a podcast where uh, on Tuesdays, one of us tells the other a story about a cryptid or mythological creature. And then on Thursdays, whoever was listening on Tuesday tells the other person a story about a true crime of the true crime variety. You know, murder, burglary, thievery, general naughtiness. And then the following week, whoever started the true crime will do a cryptid. And because we do the old switcheroo. Yeah. Let's go switcheroo. So I because... am tired. <laughs> <laughs> so because Hattie told me a wonderful cryptid story on Tuesday about unicorns, which I loved. I love unicorns. They're so cool. Uh, they... This week. You don't have a six-year-old. I'm going to restate that. That's true, I don't. But I never grew out of loving Lisa Frank, let's be honest. I have two Lisa Frank coloring books within eyesight right now. I own the Lisa Frank, like, felt posters. Oh, I had the, uh, I had a notebook, like a Lisa Frank notebook with, like, Rainbow Kitten on the cover. And I had the pencils, and I think, like, a a folder, like a two-pocket folder. But just that was enough. I was like, this is, I'm only 12, but this, I think, is what, when people talk about trips, this is it. I would just, you know, my parents would bring me to the local Rexall and be like, you can get one thing. That's actually where I got my, it was like an old-fashioned Rexall, and that okay. happened to be where I got my uh, my first gra- <laughs> my first graphing calculator, TI-81. Oh, I loved my TI-89. Yeah, this was a TI-81. It was $14, and I brought it to school, and the teacher was like, you need a TI-83 at least. And I'm like, well, this is what I got. <laughs> it was $14. Anyhow. Yeah, and um, they had the the giant Lisa Frank felt posters where you color them in yourself. Oh, that's so cool. I love those. I wish yeah, I had I had like I had like five. Oh. Anyway, since time, you told anyway. me about unicorns on Tuesday... <laughs> Uh, that means I'll be telling you a true crime thing today. You will be telling me a true crime thing today. And what is the true crime today? Uh, shall I get right into it? Yes, get right into it. All right, I'll get, get right into it. Here we go. Here okay. We go. I have caffeine in my body because <laughs> I'm a functioning adult. I probably don't anymore because I tend to stop drinking coffee around 5 o'clock. <laughs> I had an energy drink at 8 that explains it then. <laughs> yeah. Those things are, they pack a punch. Okay. Maybe. Getting into it. August 4th, 1892, Fall River, Massachusetts. Setting the scene. It's 1892. 400 years, 400 <laughs> years after Columbus sailed the ocean. 
Yes. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so it's that's eighteen ninety two New England. It's probably humid because it's August. Um, Gross. Okay, so a man named Andrew had breakfast with his wife. He left the house to run some errands. Uh, He took a morning stroll, and he returned to his house uh, in the late morning to take a nap. By the afternoon, Andrew and his wife were both dead. They were beaten to death with a hatchet. Sounds like a very unpleasant way to die. Yeah. Um, I mean, you say you hear the word hatchet, you think, I don't know, I always think blunt. I think of that children's book, The Hatchet, of the teenage boy who gets stranded on a desert island. Ooh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Andrew and his wife, they were dead. Uh, you've probably Unfortunate. guessed where this story is going. Because exactly their last the name, <laughs> their last name was Borden, and the person who ended up being accused of their crime was their daughter, and you've probably already guessed it's Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother forty whacks. When she realized what she'd done, she gave her father forty one. Yay! <laughs> from. Being someone from New England, that was like one of those morbid childhood recess songs. Uh, yeah, I'm not even from New England, and we still had that that like jump rope rhyme. So it definitely permeated. Oh, you guys had as a every- you guys had as a jump rope rhyme. We had a, yeah. one of those patty cake things. Okay. Like one of the the hand clapping games. Yeah, we had for the hand clapping one. We had. Something about bullfrogs jumping from bank to bank. Oh, down by the bank? Yeah. Yep, yeah. We, we had, had a that. <laughs> we had a really racist one that I didn't realize it was racist till the other, like actually two months ago when it got stuck in my head and I said it aloud and my husband gave me a look saying, oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. It was the one that's like, um, I went to a Chinese restaurant to buy a loaf of bread bread. Oh bread. no, I know that one. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is, that is, oh. Anyway. It's like it's what, yeah, anyway. So, <laughs> Lizzie Gordon took an axe, gave her father 41 laps to the face. She, so, well, somebody took an axe. But someone took an axe, and it was more like less 40 wax, more like 19. That is still 19 more wax than I want, and if I'm gonna die by wax with a hatchet, that's at least 18 more than I want. True. Yeah, that's nobody wants that many hatchet wax. It's but, excessive. Okay. It's, it's, yeah, overkill, literally. Just a little extra. <laughs> Lizzie Andrew Borden, and I love that her middle name is her father's first name. I love it when that happens. Uh, it's so cool. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born July 19th, 1860, in Fall River to Andrew and Sarah Borden. She had two older sisters. There was Emma, who was born 11 years before, in 1851. And then there was Alice, who was born in 1856. Alice doesn't feature very heavily into the story because she only lived for two years. Yeah, okay, that explains it, because I was going to say, I don't remember Alice being in the story. I remember Lizzie, definitely. I remember Emma. Who's yeah, Alice? Oh, yeah. the dead one. Alice okay. didn't last too long. Like, then that was a sad, but kind of a fairly common occurrence for your kids to die. Not last. Um, 
So uh, Lizzie and Emma's upbringing uh, skewed more towards the religious direction. They attended a central congregational church and were involved in church activities outside of the services. Uh, one specific example is that when she was older, Lizzie was a Sunday school teacher and she taught children of recent immigrants. Oh, neat. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And as an adult, she was also the secretary and treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society. She was also involved in some contemporary social movements of the time, including the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Them's are the people who got prohibition. Yep, yep, she was one of them. Fun fact, fun history fact, it wasn't just temperance against alcohol, it was temperance towards anything immoral, and the temperance movement is what caused the ban on the circulation of birth control and birth control pamphlets via the U.S. mail. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, when, and I think I wrote this down somewhere later in my notes, but I don't want to scroll and lose my place, um, but at some point during... Lizzie and Emma's childhood. Emma, like I said, 11 years older than Lizzie was, so Emma remembers it more. But sometime during their childhood, their mother, Sarah, passed away. Oh, no. And, yeah. And then their father, Andrew, married a woman named Abby Durfrey Gray. And despite the social practice of the time, neither Lizzie nor Emma ever referred to their stepmother as mother. They only ever referred to her as... Oh, I don't like it. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm one t- thing I... to... It's it's one thing to, like... I, I mean, I can kind of understand them being like, I feel uncomfortable referring to you as my mother because my mother recently passed away and I'm trying to honor her memory. So, like, I could see them referring to her, like, by her first name or by, like, another name. Like, they didn't have to call her mother. They could have called her Ma or... Yeah, like, uh, with my stepbaby... When she was calling me Mama Hattie. Oh, I like that. That's cute. Her mother didn't like that. Oh. My baby stepdaughter now only calls me Hattie. But if she were to call me Mrs. James, I think I would be a lot more upset. Yeah. Like, I can I can definitely they, see both sides of it. Yeah. From this way. Like, in their situation, like, their mother was no longer around to have an opinion about it. So, I they don't really say why they they only ever referred to her by mrs borden but because they were also kind of reluctant to publicly discuss the status of their relationship it's just it was commonly known that neither of them adhered to social practices but and calling her mother they neither of them did that interesting yeah the only time they ever really talked about it at some point later like during the trial lizzie did state that she believed abby only married her father for his wealth so, probably not the best of relationships. Yeah. Speak- speaking of his wealth, uh, her father, Andrew Jackson Borden, cool name, I guess. They really like that. Andrew Jackson Borden. I have opinions about Andrew Jackson, too. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has opinions about Andrew Jackson. Uh, yes. He was a problematic fellow. Yes. Okay, but uh, Andrew Borden was a successful undertaker, property developer, director of several textile mills, uh, president of the Union Savings Bank, director of the Durfee Safe Deposit Company. Uh, Durfee, that is his second wife's family, because she was Abby Durfee Gray. So that's probably how he met her. Huh, I just... 
I just connected those dots. He was known for his intense frugality. What's the harm in that? I'm frugal. You're frugal, but your home has indoor plumbing. Oh, and no, yes, they were at, rich. They, yeah, that's the thing. Like 1892, not everyone had indoor plumbing. It was still fairly new. But the people who had it were the rich people. These were rich people. <laughs> so their home did not have indoor plumbing. It was also located not in the fancy, like, gated neighborhood that all the other rich people lived in called The Hill. Uh, no, their home was built in a business district of town. Oh, it probably smelled like poop. It probably did. <laughs> it smelled like poop and, like, factory runoff. Have you ever smelled a paper mill? Yes, yes, I have. All I'm thinking of is the smell of a paper mill. Ugh. Imagine just being surrounded by the smells of, like, a turn-of-the-century industrial park, and you I don't think... have indoor plumbing. <laughs> uh, like, honestly, I think I'd rather not exist. Yeah. So, yeah, so their home was, like, right in a business district, so they were, like, more exposed to, like, the day-to-day -day lives of, like, the working-class people. However... Despite all his frugality regarding his own home and his own immediate family, he tended to make a lot of gifts of real estate to members of his wife's family. Um, you can't give your daughters a nice place to live with indoor plumbing in a fancy area, but you can buy your wife's family real estate? What? Yeah, that was a major source of contention between Lizzie and Emma and their father. In fact, there was one instance where he gifted their stepmother's sister a house, and at that point, Lizzie and Emma finally went, okay, look here, old man. I'm paraphrasing, but they probably <laughs> said something like that. Look here, thought. <laughs> Like, hey, look here, give us some property. And he did, like, he gave them, well, okay. It was the house that they had lived in until their mother died. And then they moved into this new, not as, fan like, well, fancy, but, like, not fancy. It was a nice, like, mansion house. It just didn't have, you just couldn't poop inside. <laughs> you couldn't um, poop inside, and then you went outside, and it smelled like poop. Yep. But so, like, the house that they had lived in before that is the house he gave to them. I say gave to them. He sold it to them for a dollar. How much is it? But this is, like, 1890-something. Like, no, this is probably before that. So this is, like, probably just, like, 1880s or something. Something like, yeah. I would say, I would like, say that it's late 1880s. It's, like, not a huge amount of money, but still, like, it's it's more money than free. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to say that it's 1889. Okay. And I'm going to Google 1889 to today inflation. Website called in 2013dollars.com. So you said for $1? Yep. He sold it to them for $27.48. Okay. So, like, it's not, like, not a huge amount, but still It's a take more a guess. Than, yeah. To their credit, they later turned around and sold this property back to him for $5,000. Which is, I'm looking this up now too. Oh, this is exciting. <laughs> they sold it back to him for $137,378.26 of today's money. Okay, so after that, obviously there's a lot of tension in the house between the sisters and their father and the sisters and their stepmother. And probably at this point, 
their stepmother and their father. She's probably like raising some concerns of her own to the point where the family maid, uh, who's name is Bridget Sullivan and she will uh, we will talk about her more later Uh, she testified at trial that Lizzie and Emma rarely ever ate meals with their parents so it kind of seems like Andrew like many men of the 19th century didn't know how to interact with his own daughters and so he opted for the minimalist approach good with art not very good with parenting yeah Sometimes he, <laughs> he read Marie Kondo's books, holds child. This does not spark joy. <laughs> Yeet. <laughs> Keep the um, child out the window. Go away. Sometimes he kind of swung in the other direction and opted for a very weird approach. There was one instance in the spring of 1892, so just a few months earlier than when the murders happened. In the family barn, Lizzie had built a roost to house and keep pigeons. I love uh, pigeons. I love pigeons too. And she was that kind of person. Like she interact, like she loved animals. And there are some instances of people saying that she got along better with animals than people. But like, so she was always, she liked to be around animals and take care of them and interact with them. Uh, however, Andrew believed that the pigeons were attracting intruders on the property and like in the form of kids who wanted to like throw things at them because no matter what era it is, adolescent children, they will throw things at animals. So what do you think his reaction to pigeons in the barn would be? What, what would a sane, rational person do? Set them free. Uh... That would have been nice, but no, he killed them with a hatchet. Now I definitely do not feel bad about the fact that he died by a hatchet. That's what he gets. Yeah. Maybe it was the pigeons. It was the pigeons who did <laughs> The pigeons all banded together, put on a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> Beat them with like, a it was a killer. It was 500 pigeons in a trench coat. Uh, so, in a yeah. trench coat. <laughs> yeah so lizzie was not pleased with this development uh so in the early summer there was yet another family argument and lizzie and emma left the house to stay with friends in new bedford massachusetts for a while they took like a little mini vacation because they're like look can't deal with this anymore we need to get out of this house let's go to massachusetts yeah new bedford though what what go- what's around family? new bedford it's a city. Okay. Let's see what the Google has to say. It has a rich history. That's what they say about my town, and I still have yet to see it. By rich history, they mean Victorian architecture. Establishment, geography, parks. There's parks in it. Okay, so it's a, like a, it's just, it's a city. It's just a typical New England city. All right. All right, sounds good. So they went to New Bedford for a little bit. Uh, they returned later. They they stayed there for about a month. And when they returned to Fall River at the end of July, Emma went back to the house. Lizzie chose to stay at a local rooming house for a few days before she went home. So even when they returned, she was still like, I'm not ready yet. So before we get into the morning of August 4th, there's a few other things that are relevant to know that happened beforehand. A year before in August, uh, their house had been broken into and burglarized. Like some small like jewelry, some small art pieces were stolen. General house robbery. The second thing was there was a recurring incident in that late at night there were reports of a prowler on their property. Just unnamed that creeps person. Me out. Yeah, just kind of like person just like lurking around in their yard. That's 
Not a fan of that. Not a fan of that. Like, no one knows, like, were they staking them out? Were they just being weird? No one really knows. But so that's that's also something to keep in mind. The day before, on August 3rd, the entire household was violently ill. That is how it's described on the Murderpedia entry. The family doctor... Without indoor plumbing. Without indoor plumbing. Yeah, that must have been real fun. They're using, taking advantage of those, um, I guess they all had their, like, own chamber pot, probably. <laughs> oh, gross. Gross, yeah. The family doctor said that the likely cause was that, uh, because Andrew was part of his frugality thing, was that, like, on Sunday, they'd have, like, the food on Sunday, like, the big Sunday meal, and then, like, the leftovers of it, they would leave out on the stove, and then that would be, like, used in the, like, in the next coming week over multiple days. Like, they'd be no! like... Yeah, so no indoor plumbing. This is also 1892. No refrigerators. And it's August. So if you leave mutton out on the stove, it's gonna go rancid. So that's probably why they were sick. Uh, however, Abby, his wife, was convinced that they had been poisoned because Andrew Borden was not a popular man with his family or with the general community. And I have an aside here in my notes that talks about why he was possibly not a favorite in the community. Uh, earlier I said he was a, what did I say, he was an undertaker? Yep. Yeah, he was a successful undertaker. One of the reasons he was a successful undertaker and funeral director was uh, he was one of those people that would like vastly overcharge his clients and then kind of deliver shoddy results. Oh, he, no. Like he cheat basically like he shortchanged people, cheated people, made his fortune through questionable business practices. And do you think he did? Is there anything saying like did he do that that really shoddy thing that sometimes uh, undertakers do where they're like, oh yeah, these people don't need to be buried with their goods. I'm going to keep them and sell them. That that's one thing. That's one thing he was accused of. One of the other things he was accused of is that he would sometimes cut off the feet of the bodies so he could put them in smaller, cheaper coffins. No! Yeah. Why? Smaller, cheaper coffins. Why? Nobody needs feet. Where did he do with the feet? He probably, like, included them in the coffin. Like, he just chopped them off so that they didn't have to use as long of coffins and then, like, I don't know, like, stuck the feet. Like, I'll just, like, stick no! these down. No! Why? Yes. Gotta get that money. No. So yeah, that's why he wasn't popular in the community. And uh, one more thing to keep in mind is that the night before all this went down, their sister's maternal uncle, John Morse, was visiting the home to discuss business with Andrew. And the business discussion involved property transfers and may have served to exasperate an already tense situation. So this was their mother's brother. Their uncle, his ex-brother-in-law. Yes. So he stayed overnight with them. Like, he was there the night before and he stayed in the guest room. Okay, now we are getting into the morning of August 4th. Most of the family was present for breakfast. Andrew, uh, his wife Abby, Lizzie, and John Morse, who had spent the night in the guest room, 
and the family made Bridget Sullivan were all there. Emma was not there. She was visiting friends in another town. After the morning meal, uh, Andrew and John Morse went into the sitting room where they continued their conversation about business and such for about another hour. So John Morse then left the house at around 9 a.m. to visit with another niece that lived in town. But he was planning on returning to the Borden house for lunch. Around this same time, 9 a.m., Andrew left for his boarding walk. And between 9 and 10.30, Abby went upstairs to make the bed in the guest room. I thought that was struck me as a little weird because they have a family maid. But then later it turns out that Bridget Sullivan was only responsible for cleaning the lower floors of the house. She didn't deal with the like the family like their personal rooms she only cleaned like the downstairs and the more public areas i guess so abby goes upstairs to make the bed in the guest room uh while abby's up cleaning the guest room uh she is struck on the side of the head with a hatchet which causes her to fall face down on the floor and then her killer continued to strike multiple times delivering between 17 and 19 blows to the back of the head I mean, again, seems a bit excessive, but okay. Yeah. Uh, around 10.30 is when Andrew returned, and he entered the sitting room, and it's presumed that he, like, went into the sitting room to take a nap because he was, like, reclining on the couch when he was struck between 10 to 11 times with a hatchet. So much so that... Trigger warning, this is kind of gross. One of his eyeballs had been split oh! completely in two. No! Oh, no! It was a bad time. Andrew's body was discovered by Lizzie sometime after 11 a.m., who called out to Bridget, who was on the, I believe she was outside cleaning the windows on the third floor. So, like, up on a ladder cleaning windows. She, uh, Lizzie calls to her, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. And here I have another side note. The family maid's name was Bridget, but she was frequently referred to as Maggie. And this is either because Maggie was the name of their previous maid and they just kept forgetting. Or, probably more likely, uh, she was Irish. She was an Irish immigrant, and the prejudicial practices of the day was to refer to Irish female servants as Meg. Okay, so uh, jump to a half hour later. The police have been summoned. Uh, Andrew's body is covered with a sheet, and the lower half of the house is being searched by police for evidence of an intruder. Also, a neighborhood friend and a uh, the family doctor was summoned to uh, comfort Lizzie and treat her for shock. And this is when the body of Abby Borden was discovered upstairs. Because Abby's body was cold when they discovered her, while Andrew's body was still warm, like when he was laying there covered with a sheet. So that's how they were able to determine the order and the time in which they had been killed. The story immediately made headlines and spread like, well, I guess the cliche is to spread like wildfire. The reporters who had access to the crime scene, because... Hello, 19th century crime scene practices. Invite your friends and neighbors to stomp all over the evidence. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Yeah. 
These reporters described the face of Andrew Board in very intense detail. Uh, one of them wrote, Over the left temple, a sound 6x4 had been made as if it had been pounded with the dull edge of an axe. The left eye had been dug out, a cut extended the length of the nose. The face was hacked to pieces, and the blood covered the man's shirt. Gross. Uh, so yeah, they just let the reporters come in. They're like, hey, want to see a dead body? What was the murder investigation like in 1892? <laughs> Gross. Blah, blah, blah. Speaking of the press, though, some of the newspapers of the time began to raise suspicions regarding Lizzie's possible involvement way before the police investigators ever got there. They focused particularly on that fact we talked about before, that Lizzie did not have a happy relationship with her stepmother. Lizzie's very vocal objections and refusal to accept Abby as her new mother would have been considered incorrect social behavior, but also now cause for suspicion when harm befell said stepmother. The Boston Daily Globe reported rumors that, quote, Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully, and that for a considerable time back they have not spoken. However, not every paper was on board with this. The Boston Herald uh, viewed Lizzie as above suspicion and wrote, From the consensus of opinion, it can be said, in Lizzie Borden's life, there is not one unmaidenly nor a single deliberately unkind act. Originally suspected of the killings was an immigrant worker from one of Andrew Borden's businesses, and he had come to the house before on more than one occasion to ask about the back pay he was owed. And uh, that morning there were several witnesses who placed a so-called, quote, mystery man in the yard of the Borden house in the late morning, but the descriptions of him are so scattered and disjointed. Some people described him as Irish. Some people described him as Portuguese. The suspect was eventually eliminated as a possibility by the investigators. Okay. Uh, there was also uh, a lack of evidence supporting the fourth century or break-in theory so the investigators eventually came to the conclusion that the murders must have been committed by someone within the Borden home. There was one thing well there were a few things that threw a wrench into their investigation. One of them was the lack of blood anywhere in the house except on the bodies themselves. Um, oh also the fact they never had a murder weapon. But how did they know it was a hatchet? They don't. All the descriptions of the bodies describe the weapon as being a hatchet-like object. So that not doesn't bode well for their case. That's not good enough. Yeah. The family maid, Bridget Sullivan, was suspected at one point in the investigation, as she obviously had been in or around the house during the killings. And, like as we said before, uh, she was Irish, so she was an Irish immigrant working for a wealthy family, so of course that made her guilty of something by default in the minds of the investigators. And not just the investigators, also the press and the public were fairly certain. They're like, well, she has to have done something. By all accounts of her own testimony and the testimony of others and of witnesses, she was outside washing windows when Abby was killed. And she was probably inside later when Andrew was killed, but she wasn't necessarily on that floor. Uh, so... This is when suspicion started to turn towards Lizzie, and uh, more towards Lizzie, less towards Emma, because uh, Emma was out of the home at the time of the murders, and she was she was away in another town visiting friends. Uh, Lizzie 
was starting to be viewed with suspicion. Uh, her explanations as to her whereabouts in the house at the time of the murders was inconsistent. And there was later testimony that she was discovered by a family friend burning a stained dress in the kitchen stove. Uh, part of the dress was recovered, but because of its condition, it was impossible to determine what the stain on it was, whether it was blood or not. The police were saying it was blood because, of course, they were. And everyone else in the house was saying that it was, like, grease paint. So it's impossible to know. Let's see. Uh, five days after the murders is when the inquest was held. Uh, in the courtroom over police headquarters. And during this time, the district attorney questioned Lizzie Borden, Bridget Sullivan, their uncle John, as well as uh, several others. And during I have her... a, a problem here with that. What's up? I swear I remember hearing that some doctor had like for her nerves given her like a shit ton of freaking like morphine or something like that. So she was stoned or strung out. I think so, yeah. I don't remember if I included that in my notes, but I definitely did read that. Yeah. Because that's, like, the golden days of, the, like, when you could just kind of wander around as a doctor being like, oh, what's that meme? The, oh, you've got ghosts in your blood. You should do cocaine about it. That's, like, yeah, that's, so absolutely. She. That's probably the first thing they did. They're like, what's your in shock? Some hair. Some opium. It's like, here's yeah. some morphine. Straight into your blood. <laughs> oh, goodbye. Have fun on that trip. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, like, and there's any number of reasons why her answers during the inquest were contradictory and confusing. Like, any number of reasons other than guilt. So, like, discovering the mutilated body of your father, even if you didn't get along with him, that's still gonna cause some degree of shock. Like, Especially, this is an era where people aren't as constantly exposed to, like, sensationalized media. Like, we're yeah. pretty much, we're in, like, a constant stream of, like, we've been desensitized. We're like, here's the thing, here's the news, here's the news, everything's terrible, everything's terrible, everything's terrible. They didn't have that. It was, they're like, here's the morning paper. Sometimes here's the evening paper. You'll find out about the thing a couple days later. Like, it wasn't as in your face. And aside from newspaper reporters prancing around dead bodies and describing them, they're not really going to be exposed to, like, that level of gore. Like, gore-based media. So, finding, like, I, a body I can't like this that... this is before Texas Chainsaw Massacre existed. <laughs> yeah. So finding a body like that, even if it wasn't someone you were related to, you're still going to be like physically affected by that. Like your brain's going to be like, I don't know how to handle this information. Shutting down. Whatever. Either way, two days after this inquest, the chief of police arrested Lizzie Borden on suspicion of the murders of her father and her stepmother. She entered um... a plea of not... <laughs> what? Yeah, so that's that's two days after the inquest, so a total of seven days later, they're arresting her for under suspicion of murder. Has her Great. father even Great been job, buried? guys! Has her father even been buried at this point? Not all of him, and we'll get to that later. 
I don't I don't like actually know when that. the funeral for them was held. I don't like the sound yeah. of not all of him. I don't like that. We'll get to it. <laughs> okay. I trust so, you. So she enters a plea of not guilty and was taken to the jail, which was uh, eight or so miles away. Um, and then later returns to Falls River for the grand jury hearing regarding whether or not she should be indicted on charges of murder. And this is when they hear new testimony from the family friend who claims to have found her burning the dress. Uh, this is a friend who s stayed with Lizzie and Emma in the few days following the murder. And she tells the grand jury that she witnessed Lizzie burning a stained blue dress. And this testimony is paired with other testimony from Bridget that Lizzie had been wearing a blue dress that morning. And based on this evidence, the grand jury indicted Lizzie for the murders and she would go on trial a year later in June of 1893. I believe so. And I believe I read this in Sarah Miller's book, she was in prison, but it wasn't regular prison. Like, I'm pretty sure she was in, like, a much smaller, much... She had, like, she was treated, like, not super great, but she was treated better than a lot of, like, people of a lower class standing would have been. Okay. Like, she had her own cell, she had books, she had... She had a lot of amenities and, like, was granted, like, time to go... I don't know if she was, like, allowed to, like, take it into town to do stuff or, like, she was... She definitely had a lot of privileges. Okay. Um, it still wasn't great because she was in jail. But it was... So they arrested her almost immediately, but then let her sit in jail for a year. Rude, but okay. Very rude, yeah. Um, okay, so this is a year later, 1893. Uh, during the trial... Or maybe, maybe this is why it took them a year. Because during the trial itself, it became very apparent very quickly that the prosecution had little to no physical evidence to base their case on. Fun. They had a hatchet head that had been found in the basement, but they could not convincingly demonstrate that it was the murder weapon because there was no blood on it. Or handle. And there was no handle. Um. There was evidence given by some of the investigating officers that they did find a handle, but there was no handle given at trial. So either they found it and lost it, or they were just lying. We don't know. <laughs> some of them said there was a handle. Some of them said there wasn't a handle. Either way, in the courtroom, there was no handle. So it doesn't that's matter. A train wreck. It's a, that's an actual nope. train wreck. There was no bloody clothing found at the scene, and so they were relying solely on that testimony of the friend who claims to have found Lizzie burning a blue dress. Um, I mean, they had pieces of a dress that had been burned. Whether or not that was what she saw her burning, because it sounds, it, from all the stuff I read, it sounds very much like she only came forward with that testimony after they started asking like people they're like are you sure you didn't see anything weird pressure 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 and she's like maybe i saw her doing this but i don't know and there was also some uh contradictory testimony uh from 
Bridget and Lizzie. Uh, Bridget testified that when Andrew returned home, Lizzie was downstairs talking to him. But Lizzie testified that at that time when Andrew returned home, she was out in the barn and there were witnesses in the form of their neighbors who took the stand to testify for the defense that, yes, they saw Lizzie in the barn slash leaving the barn at the time in question. So, and this is, uh, this is the answer to your question about whether they had been buried when she was arrested. No. During the trial. Did they chop his feet well, off? Not during, they didn't chop his feet off, but during the autopsy, both of the victims' heads had been removed and their skulls were admitted as evidence. Why would you do that? Well, I mean, I understand why they would want the skulls as evidence. Like, once they, like, clearly they, the, the, the wounds in the flesh wouldn't last until the trial, but the damage to the skulls sure would. So, and I can see why they would want to admit it as evidence, but they did it very, I don't know, the prosecution was like, and here are the skulls of the victims that we didn't tell the defense that we were using. And when Lizzie saw the skulls in the courtroom, she fainted. Like, obviously, she's like, well, that's my dad's head. Down I go. Yeah, understandable. But, yeah. So, yeah, they didn't have a lot of physical evidence to base their case on, so the prosecution relied heavily on witness testimony about okay. conversations prior to and after the murders and um, conversations and testimony regarding Lizzie's relationship with her stepmother. So they based their case on hearsay, okay. pretty much. And everything that the prosecution put up, the defense matched with their own witnesses to contradict the one, with the exception of one piece of evidence. The testimony about the dress. The defense wanted to put Emma on the stand to testify that it was a family custom to burn clothes that had been stained and unwearable, like she wanted to get up and testify that like of course she was burning a dress that's what we do when something gets stained like by paint or by grease and can't be used like as cleaning rags we burn them uh the judge ruled that evidence inadmissible the defense's closing statement argued there is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against lizzie a borden there is not a spot of blood. There is not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion. And the jury agreed, because on June 20th, 1893, after an hour and a half of deliberation, Lizzie Borden was acquitted of all charges. Like, Good even thing. if she did it, playing devil's advocate in saying that, what if she did it? They didn't have enough of a case to ever bring it to trial, by the sound exactly. of it. Exactly. I'm fairly certain those shows, the like the Lizzie Borden Chronicles and then the Lizzie Borden took an act starring Christina Ricci. I vaguely remember watching that and I'm pretty sure they portrayed it as Lizzie Borden did it, but they portrayed it Lizzie Borden did it and they didn't, but the prosecution didn't have enough evidence to ever have taken it to court and that's why she got off. Okay. So it's like just not, you don't just, you can't base anything on hearsay. Okay. Yeah, I haven't watched those yet. I don't know if I want to. <laughs> the movie I mean, is uh, the movie's kind of good, but uh, and I'm actually now having flashbacks to yeah, they showed the dead pigeons, so oh. I should have known that fact. You said, um, but they 
the movie's good, the show not so much. The show portrays her as a psychopathic serial killer, and she kills at least Aww. one person in every episode. Oh. And uses the wealth and prosperity she has from um from the inheritance she got from her father when he died in order to make sure she's never like nothing for the the crimes. It's huh. it's a it's not a good show. That's yeah, don't like that. I mean, it's a good. It'd be a good show if it wasn't for the fact that I'm a someone with a master's in history. If somebody takes like, I'm gonna take this one little piece of history and I'm changing everything else. I can't stand it. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that either. Yeah. But okay, so in the aftermath of the case, uh, the media, for the most part, the media praised the jury's verdict. Uh. The New York Times had an editorial feature that stated, It will be a certain relief to every right-minded man or woman who has followed the case to learn that the jury at New Bedford has not only acquitted Miss Lizzie Borden of the atrocious crime with which she was charged, but has done so with a promptness that was very significant. And then that same editorial went on to say some not very nice things about the police who investigated the crime and also some not very nice things about the prosecution who tried the case and it basically just implied they were all very bad at their jobs <laughs> uh not only for accusing lizzie of the crime but also for allowing it to even get as far as it did i can imagine um, like yeah I, I, one thing I kind of thought about, though, was I think it could probably be fair to say that if Lizzie had been Andrew's son rather than Andrew's daughter, the jury might have been more convinced to convict. Easier time bringing back a guilty verdict. I can see that. Yeah. Definitely. So after the trial, Lizzie, in a baller move... Returns to Fall River and <laughs> there. However, uh, they did not stay. They obviously did not stay in that house. Um, she and her sister Emma purchased a very fancy house in the hill, the fancy neighborhood. Um, and the house was one of those New England houses that has its own name. Oh, just like the New Jersey houses that have its own name, like the Lindbergh one last story. Exactly. It was in the most New England name ever. Their house's name was Maplecroft. Maplecroft. <laughs> oh, that's what I wanted to name my house. <laughs> Dang it. Okay, so after this all simmers down, uh, they try and return to some semblance of what a normal life would be for them. Lizzie took an interest in the theater. She frequently attended plays and she associated, she started associating with actors and artists and the bohemian types. Um, however, outside of that scene, uh, despite her acquittal, she was ostracized by most of the rest of society, like other than the actors and the bohemian types. Uh, most of the rest of the town, uh, they didn't really want to associate with her. Which I thought was kind of weird, considering how unpopular her father was. But Not either just way, that, but how much the media 
also with how much the media heralded her um uh her acquittal. Yeah. But either way, uh she was ostracized from most of society. So aside from her involvement with the theater, she pretty much uh stayed out of the public eye until 1897 when she was charged with the theft of two paintings from a local store. She has all the money that her dead father left her. Why does she need to steal paintings? I don't know, because I couldn't find anything else about that other than it happened. But then all the sources I had said that it was privately resolved. So she probably paid them off. <laughs> but she probably should have done in the first place. Why are you stealing paintings? And also... You have it's- it's really hard. It, you can't subtly steal paintings. Like, what's that under your trench coat? Nothing. Don't mind this large frame. But this is I'm. A, this is a baby bump. Oh, a very God. square. <laughs> I don't know. It's. It's not. It's not easy to steal paintings. No, uh, it's not. So, like, no wonder she was caught. Um. Emma moved out of Maplecroft in 1905. This was when Lizzie met uh, an actress named Nance O'Neill and became inseparable from her. And Emma didn't really approve of their relationship. So she just very quietly and without a lot of fuss moved out and moved um, to New Hampshire uh, with family friends. And... So they were estranged for a little bit, and Lizzie continued to live in Maplecroft until she died from pneumonia on June 1st in 1927, and Emma, in New Hampshire, died nine days later. Oh my gosh. And they are buried next to each other in Oak Grove Cemetery. That gave me chills the first time I ever read that, was that they, they died so close like they were so close, even though Emma was, Emma was like a decade older than Lizzie, but even so, they were so close. Their whole lives, and then they die that close to each other. That's that that's weird. Um. Okay, so moving on to the theories. The very first theory is that she actually did do it, but was in a fugue state and was unaware of her actions. Okay. And I can see that. I can see that being thing because like. Fugue states are intense, and there's a lot of like historians that just are researching into whether or not Lizzie had suffered from like any undiagnosed mental things, which is entirely possible. It's the 19th century; they're not very good at acknowledging stuff like that, especially in women. I can easily see her having a, like an undiagnosed and untreated condition, and it plus all the family stress maybe caused her to go into a like a dream state, and she did something that she didn't know she was doing. I can easily see that being the case. Okay. So, but I still count that as not being responsible for it. So I don't. That's think she did. not guilty by reason of insanity. So that's yes. not guilty. Yeah. Uh, the second theory is that Bridget Sullivan did it. Uh, maybe in her anger at being ordered to clean windows on a very, very hot day in August in New England while still recovering from food poisoning. <laughs> like, that would that would make me angry. I'd be like, yeah, okay. 
and being called something that's not your name, that was probably a rude, um, derogatory term for your heritage. Yeah, yeah, like, I can, it's plausible, I can see that. Um, although, if that, like, if she had done it, I don't see why the sisters wouldn't have, like, immediately cast suspicion on her, which they didn't do, so, like, it's possible, but probably not. The third theory is that Lizzie and Bridget did it together after being caught in a lover's embrace by Andrew. Uh... I don't know how much evidence there is to support that theory, but it's very popular on the internet. The evidence is probably her close relationship with that actress um, at the time Emma moved out, because I do know that people speculated at that time that it was a same-sex relationship. So they're like, well, she had that relationship, so what if she was having a relationship with Bridget? That makes sense. Okay, yeah, because yeah. that you're right, that is that was one of the speculated reasons why Emma moved out. Let's see. <laughs> I have here in my notes, the way to catch the interest of the internet. Everything is lesbians. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, okay, theory four. Um... Uh, this is a little more, I don't know if this is more, I don't think this is a conspiracy. I think this is entirely plausible. In, uh, nearby in the town, there was an apple farmer and a horse renderer, which I looked that up. It's very unpleasant. Don't look it up. Um, I will not look it up. <laughs> whose name was William Borden, and he was rumored to be the illegitimate son of Andrew Borden. And when he was drunk, which happened often, William Borden would talk about rich men and rich sisters and of wealth that would one day be his. Uh, the Borden family, of course, denied these rumors. Um, but it is, and it is possible that William spent time in an asylum, and he was known to be weirdly emotionally attached to his hatchet and talk to it as though it were a living person. Um, and I, um and that and then coupled with the fact that there were report there was a reported prowler on their property in the few days leading up to the murders, I think that theory has some credibility to it. Like whether or not he actually was the illegitimate son of Andrew Borden. Like, he thought he was. He, he yeah, that's it. like what's important is that he thought he was. He was unstable. He liked to drink, and there were prowlers outside of their house. <laughs> so, possible. Theory five is that uh, John Morse did it. Uh, their uncle, uh, their maternal uncle. Um, he rarely ever met with the family after his sister died, uh, but he had been at the house the night before and then the morning of the killings. And... Uh, he had an alibi, but according to law enforcement, his alibi was too perfect and had too many details. That's never uh, a good sign. And he, he was a, he was one of the working suspects for a short time. And the last theory that I have is that Emma did it. And this one's a little more involved because as... She was out of town. She was out of town. She was in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. Um, and she has an established alibi with the family friends at Fairhaven. 
Uh, the theory goes that she establishes her alibi, then secretly comes back to Fall River to commit the murders, then returns to Fairhaven in time to receive the telegram informing her of the murders. So it's a little more involved, but then um, the possible motives that uh, they give as to why Emma could possibly have done it. Um, Emma was 12 years old when her mother died, as opposed to Lizzie only being two years old. So she was more attached to her mother because she was older and had more time to get to know her. And okay. so she did not get along with her stepmother. Um, she got along well enough with her father, um, even though his uh, his intense frugality and not great um, reputation in the town caused all of her potential suitors to flee. To flee far away before any relationship could be formed. Yeah, because she was, so, what, like 43, 44 years old? That went way past spinster age. Yes, way it. past... Yep, uh, and pretty much her father is the reason why she was a spinster. Like, it was it was because of her father. So he, I mean, in no way am I disparaging a life of spinsterhood. It's my life's ambition. <laughs> but in the 19th century, it was not what was expected of oh. a lady, especially a lady of higher standing. So also, uh, Emma was very notorious as being, she was... She was like the the quiet, subservient daughter and sister. Even though she was the older sibling, she was always very subservient to Lizzie. Anytime she was in any position of power, she would relinquish that power to her younger sister, who was more outgoing and more vocal. Um, she was very much that, like, anytime she was, like, experiencing anger or emotional stress, she just kind of swallowed it, pushed it down, and was like, all right... I must be the, like, paragon of virtue and things. That's so, how people explode. Yeah, it's entirely possible that, like, a lifetime of that, of just pushing her emotions down and just going with stuff, that something, like, this, what do they call the straw that breaks the camel's backs, like, one more family argument happens and she snaps. Like, it's, yeah. so it's, it's a little bit more convoluted of how she would have been able to do it. But I still think it's it's a it's a plausible theory that like Emma Emma snaps Emma does it and then Lizzie takes the fall for it, knowing that or like being strongly convinced of the fact that because of the lack of evidence and her social standing that she's going to be acquitted anyway. So like because they were so close, like I can very much imagine Lizzie being like. I know you did it, but because you're my sister and I love you, I will take the blame for you. But why would Emma go wrong with that, especially because they had to have known that they were going to be ostracized once she was acquitted. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I, I've read I, this, is, this is one of my favorite crimes to read about. I've read so much stuff about it and I still I still don't know who like I still can't decide who I think did it. Like other than I don't think Lizzie was responsible for it. I I mean I kind of swing back and forth between the um the uh Uncle John and Emma theories. Okay. But like I mean they're all all of the theories that I just talked about they all have like plausible parts and, and like I think any one of them could be could be real we don't know and we probably never will it's just 
it's so persistent in American culture. Like even now, like you said, you 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 remember the rhyme from the playground. I remember the rhyme. Everybody remembers the rhyme from the playground. And this was, I don't think it was the very first, but it was one of the first nationally prominent murder cases. I don't think it was the very first. The very first, or one of the very first, um, I'm actually going to cover next episode, so. Okay. But yeah, this was nationally prominent, like, every, like, it was in papers all over the United States, and it, despite all the circumstantial evidence, it's still an unsolved crime. Um, in fact, the, like, there's only one other unsolved murder case that like I can think of that has this same similar level of like national fascination and that's Jack the Ripper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the thing and the thing about with with both Jack the Ripper and with Lizzie Borden, the thing that's frustrating is okay, when you think of it, um with Lizzie Borden she she was acquitted. They said she was not guilty. Which means we don't know who did it. And the murderer was walking free. Yep. The person who committed a heinous crime and butchered two people in broad daylight is walking walking free. Yep. Yeah, and I think even if, like, new evidence is uncovered and we do discover who was responsible, I think, like, these murders are going to remain a part of our culture, like, for a long time. Um, just the number of books written about them, the, like, there's all the theories, but there's also, it's in popular culture, too, because, like, there's, like, dramatic plays, there's novels, there's poems, there's songs, there's a ballet, <laughs> there's an opera, there's several movies, I'm pretty sure there's, like, an off-Broadway musical, like, yeah, and, like, and the books that were written about it, it's not just, like, the non-fiction accounts of it, there's, there's novels that have been inspired by this um like my favorite one one of my favorite books in the world is we have always lived in the castle by shirley jackson and like that every time i read that i'm like oh this was absolutely inspired by the lizzie borden case um there's a series of horror novels by sherry priests that uh takes some creative liberties and casts lizzie borden as a like supernatural style monster hunter <laughs> protecting humanity from demons and cosmic evils uh it's called the borden dispatches and Interesting. uh in those books lizzie did do it but because her parents were possessed by demons huh. it, yeah they're, they're they're a trip like if you get a chance to read those they're like not entirely historically accurate but they're pretty entertaining um, but yeah, Lizzie's just, she's become a part of the fabric of our society, and she's always going to be a part of it, whether or not she committed the murders. So, so that's Lizzie Borden. <laughs> that was amazing. That was a lot more information than even I knew about, and I'm from New England, so. Like, uh, that's. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I read a lot of, like I said, I've read a lot of stuff about her. I mainly... Uh, got my information from well, obviously Wikipedia, Murderpedia. Um, there was a, an article called "The Bordens of Fall River" that uh, I, like I only found like a a university's litserv from an old class. I don't remember which litserv, but um, 
A lot of my information I got from a really good book called The Borden Murders, Lizzie Borden and the Trial of the Century, which is by Sarah Miller. And if you ever get a chance to read that, I highly recommend it. She, Sarah Miller is an amazing researcher. She's written books about uh, the Romanovs. She's written a book about um, Annie Sullivan, uh, who was uh, Helen Keller's teacher. Uh, this yeah. woman is an amazing researcher and she spent a lot of time and effort writing about Lizzie Borden. And I think it's one of my favorite Lizzie Borden books. So if you get a chance to read that, highly recommend, much recommend. <laughs> I'll definitely put it on my list and I'm sure the listeners will too. Yay. Well, should we tell people where to find us? Yes, I think we should. All right. Uh, we are on Twitter at uh, PFAB Monster Pod. We are also on Instagram at Truly Fabulously Monstrous, and that's also the name of our Gmail. If you would like to email us at Truly Fabulously Monstrous at gmail.com, maybe you're from Falls River, maybe you're related to the Bordens, maybe you've heard this story, or you have a theory, or you know or you anything. Took the just, tour of the haunted house. Yes, just. You know, we'd love to hear from you, whatever it is. We love listener interactions. Yes. Yes, we do. Right. And, all right. Well, this is the Thursday episode we're recording now, so I guess if you're listening to this, tune in next Tuesday while Kevin talks about some cryptid. Yes. I'm already starting researching. I have plans. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll catch you in the next episode. We'll be there. We hope you will, too. Bye. Bye.